Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing the stories and the lessons learned from top industry leaders making a difference in our field today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Today, we're speaking with Valerie Babushkin. Valerie is the head of data science at X5 Retail Group, which is a food retailer, quite a large food retailer based out of Russia, has also a significant presence in Europe. So Valerie is the head of data science there, and also he is in the top 60 in the world on Kaggle. So obviously quite an impressive lad. He has a number of departments working in his area. So he tells us about those, how they're using data science to increase profits in this over 25 billion US dollar company. And he tells us about, obviously, his personal journey and also his Kaggle journey. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So hi, this is Felipe. And today I'm speaking with Valerie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me. And apparently I'm not a native English speaker. So if you can't understand what I'm talking about, feel free to re-ask me. Not a problem at all. It's great to have you on the show and I've been very excited to speak with you. And I'm also not a native English speaker. So between the two of us, <laughs> I think we're going to do a good job. We can help each other out. <laughs> oh, you speak great. You speak great. Thanks so much for being on the show. So at the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the world of data? Well, that's a long story. I'll try to start from the beginning. The first time I started to work with the data was in a company named FOSS. I've landed a job in this company right after I graduated from the university in Germany. And I received my master's degree in mechatronics and moved back to Russia. And there I've been offered a position in this company named FOSS in near infrared spectroscopy field. And what they are doing in FOSS, actually, they were producing the analyzer for food, milk, wine, and so on. And the reason is that in this industry, you need to receive the results of the content of the milk and so on pretty short time. Well, imagine you're a milk factory and each day you receive 300,000 liters of milk and you are paying for it. And basically, you don't want to pay for a white liquid. You'd like to pay for a milk and you pay not only for a milk, but for amount of protein and fat inside the milk. And there is a way how to find out what's inside this milk. And it's a chemical analyze and it takes usually two full days. And to be honest, it's almost impossible to do this test to analyze the milk in the classic chemical way because it takes too much time and no one will wait for two days before dropping the milk to the milk factory. I mean, imagine there is a lot of these machines. We just bring in the milk and we just want to load the milk into the factory and go further. And there is another way to measure the content of the milk, which is called infrared spectroscopy. So we could use a beam of light, a beam of infrared light, and it will go through the milk. And then the light is actually is a mix of different wavelengths. And we could measure these wavelengths before the milk and after the milk. And then we could measure how they differ after. And based on this, we could build a model which could tell us what's inside the milk. Because there is a physical law which tells us that based on the content, it will change. The life will change. And we could build a model and measure and tell what's inside the milk. And that time, we called this chemometric. Well, and for two years, I was doing the chemometric. I was building the models 
and we were using the regression technique, we were using neural networks, we were using dimensional reduction techniques like PCA and so on. But, uh, yeah, but I didn't know that time that's called machine learning. I've heard about machine learning. I thought that it's too complicated for me and that, okay, I'll, I'll stick to chemometrics. And then uh, finally, I did try some Coursera specialization and did find out that, well, actually, for the last two years, I was doing <laughs> machine learning, which I was calling chemometrics. And there was, it wasn't as difficult as I thought. And then I started to think, okay, maybe I could move further into machine learning because in chemometrics, okay, it's pretty close. It's almost the same. Well, it's actually machine learning, but in a quite applied field and the field is quite narrow. And also there was another reason I wanted to switch the job because I did yeah. have a 60 business trips in a year. 60. It's usually you have to leave uh, your home on Sunday and then uh, on Friday you come back and then again, that's too much. I did look through the market and there was a huge demand for data scientists and that's why I renamed myself from the application specialist, application researcher to the data scientist and in just a month uh, I received an offer for a senior data scientist position in the bank. Uh, it was the largest private owned bank at that time in Russia. For right now it's nationalized. It's a state bank now. And that's how I entered the field, actually. So for me, I did find out that uh, I was doing machine learning for two years, and I didn't know that it's called machine learning. Yeah. That, that's how. I mean, you never know. Perhaps uh, what you're doing right now is pretty close to machine learning, and you just don't know, and you think that, well, you know, machine learning is something difficult, so I can't handle it. And that, that, that's not true. So in my case, that was how. In my case, it was pretty, it surprised me that I was doing machine learning. I was just amazed because two years, almost a year, I was hearing here or there about machine learning. And I was thinking that's too complicated. It sounds complicated, machine learning. No way. I'll stick to chemometrics. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you were covering the same content. That's so interesting. And, and that's basically it. That's fantastic. And how did you find going from working with milk and from there to going into a bank? I have had and I had a great experience uh, in this infrared spectroscopy industry because what you actually need to do, you need to come to this laboratory which is built inside the milk factory and you need to explain to the people there that from now on you will switch from the old method to the new one and this magic box will give you results not in two days but one minute and mm. the results are reliable and you have to believe them uh, for it is a black box for you to you but just believe me and that is pretty close what the data scientists do actually and machine learning instructions do they coming to business, they're trying to understand the problem, and then they're trying to convince the business that way they can handle the problem, and that the business has to believe the solution these data scientists have made. Just imagine, okay, you're working in a bank, and you're a senior manager, and then you have heard that there is a machine learning, there is a data science, and the people there can do the magic, and they can solve your problem. Well, and still you're quite skeptical about it, usually. Well, at least it was uh, five years ago. I think now the situation has changed a little bit, but five years ago was a difference. And in, in, in some fields and some corporations, it's still the same attitude. So people, they are skeptical, they don't believe, but they're ready to try, they're ready to spend some money. So they, are, they hire the data science team or data scientists. They expect the magic from them. Yes. And then this person or this team has to understand what actually the business needs, what business expects from them, and they need to convince the business that the solution 
they can produce to them is the solution that business needs. Mm-hmm. It's the solution which could bring the value, money or profit or whatever. And they also have to implement it. And I would say that the job of the data scientist is 50 or 60 percent is talking to business. Well, another part or even less than a half is just to code, to make something useful. But just half of your time, you have to explain. You have to understand what people need and so on. Because you can't do a useful thing. You can't build a useful model or you can't make something which could bring a value if you don't understand what people in the company need. If you don't understand how people work there. Even if you could make something which is useful, it could be just for nothing because people will not use it. If you just develop something great and it's awesome, it's cool, it's bleeding edge, but people don't use it, it's worth nothing. So you have to convince them, you have to explain them why do they need this, how it will improve their life or how it improves their work and so on. And that's a lot of effort you have to spend. That's a lot. And that's where I think many people in data science field, they're thinking that that's easy or that someone else will do this. And the answer is no. No one will do this for you. You have to explain, to convince, and to talk to other people very much. And that's what I did find during my work uh, in this infrared spectroscopy because each week I traveled to another laboratory, I spoke to another crew, and I had to convince them that they have to rely on this new analyzer, on this magic, on this black box. And also they had a fear because, well, suppose you are a team member of the laboratory crew. There are many complicated machines, there are many chemical things and so on, there is AC, there is alkaline, and so on and so on. And you are an expert in your field and you understand that, uh, well, your boss needs you. And then someone is coming from the company named Force and telling you, okay, you were doing this for two days and now you will do this in one minute. And a lot of people have fear because they're starting to think, okay, they will replace me, this machine will replace me, I don't like mm-hmm. it, I don't believe it, or I was doing this for 30 years mm-hmm. and I don't believe that stuff. And you have just a week to convince them. Well, okay, imagine wow. that this analyzer already has been sold, this company to this laboratory, but if people will not use it, well, you will have a bad reputation and the lab manager or the quality assurance director or just the general manager who made a solution to buy the key, he'll see that there is no improvement in overall process and perhaps it was a mistake. And part of your job was not only to make things work from the physical side, from the machine side and so on, but the second part was to convince people, to talk to them. And it was a great experience because each week the new crew, new people, and that's a great experience. I would say it helped me a lot in my current job and in my life because to find out how to handle yourself with the different people is a great skill, especially for a data scientist. I think that is so true. And it's so important to be engaging with stakeholders from the start. And I really like that you highlighted the point of the end of the project that you need to keep engaging with stakeholders once the technical work is done. You need to keep speaking with them so they adopt the outcomes of the work so they can make better decisions and they can automate their work and they can be better for it. But yeah, I really like that you highlighted the fact that if people are not using it, then it's worthless. How have you gone about doing that in the past? 
you just have to invest time. You just mm-hmm. have to be patient because if you're not patient, you can't handle it. So it's just uh, the time and you talking and talking and talking. And of course, uh, I've had the reason why it's useful. And actually, well, whatever we're talking about, near infrared spectroscopy or data science projects or machine learning algorithms, their end goal is to help. And they're not only helping the general manager, the management, and so they're also helping their employees on all levels of the corporate structure. And if you are understand this, you are able to highlight this to the people, and then you could just show them the good side, the advantages of these things. And usually there are more advantages than disadvantages because nobody will invest money if it's disadvantage for you. And that's why you you have to understand the process because well, they, they people usually then people see something new, they are expecting that they'll build something better to them. That's a normal way of life because through our history, either it's something new, it was very rare good thing, and we just get used to it. Something new. Well, perhaps it's not a good thing. That's why it's crucial for you to understand the full process which is going on in the company. If you have the full process, you could highlight and you could understand to the person why at the end it will make his life easier. It will bring him some comfort. It will, bring, it will save a time. It will save some effort. But to do this, you have to understand his full routine, his full job cycle. You have to understand what he's doing, why he's doing that, and what he's trying to achieve. Not only the manager, the regular team member. And if you know, you could talk. And if you could talk, you could convince. So again, you have to dive in. You have to know a lot about business processes. That's very crucial because in many, many data science courses, the people who teach them, they are focused on the hard skills. But hard skills is important. That's true. Very important. But the soft skills is no less important than a hard skill. And I don't know is that the understanding of business process is a hard skill or a soft skill, but it's really crucial for a data scientist because in data science, we are trying to optimize. We are trying to usually improve existing business. And to do this and convince other people, we have to understand it as good as people on the other side. And that's what these two years in post taught me because well spend a lot of time with the regular team members, understand what are they doing, what's the problem they have, what pain they have. So if you understand the person's yeah. pain and you could tell him that you could relieve him from this pain and you'll explain it. Well, no one will be against that actually. So if someone will come to you and tell you, well, I know that you have this problem and you have this problem and I know how to solve this. And this person will explain you how he will solve your problem. Well, will you be against it? Probably not. That's really true. And I really like the fact that you highlight that as a data scientist, we should understand the whole role of that person, like what their day looks like, so we can help them better and show them the benefits of our work. Did you find that you had to gain the trust first or that you could lead with the solution? How did that process work? You always have to gain trust. Uh, no one, nobody trusts you. I also mentioned that we were talking about the data scientist, and there is a funny case that actually I don't like this word. And I can explain mm-hmm. why I don't like a data scientist. That's probably funny to hear from the person who has the title of the head of data science. If you will apply for a data scientist position in a 10 different companies, you probably will find out that there is a 10 different roles. In one company, well, they expect from a data scientist to build a cluster, 
to build a Hadoop from a scratch and to process a petabyte of data. Another company, the management could expect that you will bring a Tableau or Power BI or any other BI system. In the third company, people could expect from you to perform an A-B testing, make a SQL coding and so on. In the fourth company, they could expect from you machine learning and so on and so on and so on. So what does it mean? That means that if you see the title data scientist, it gives you not that many information, not that much you know after you see the data scientist title because it's mm -hmm. so different in different companies. And I think four or five months ago, I had a talk with Ken Drake. He's a senior director in a company named Blizzard. Well, perhaps you've heard about this company, they're making a video game. I asked him, Ken, what do you think? Does it make sense to call each of these person a data scientist? Because, well, there is a computer science, right? And there is a data science. Computer science is a branch of fields which are close related to each other. So they teach you like algorithms, math, programming, and so on. Then you have a person who has graduated from the computer science faculty. You're not hiring a computer scientist. You're hiring a software engineer. You're hiring a quality assurance engineer, back-end developer, front-end developer, architect, and so on. And that gives you a lot of information because if you are looking for a front-end developer, you already know what this person is supposed to do. And this person also already knows what he's supposed to do based on just the title, front-end developer. If you're looking for a back-end developer, for example, C++ back-end developer, the person already knows more or less what is expected from him. But mm -hmm. if you're looking for a data scientist, well, it could be a lot. And as I said, it makes sense to give more proper titles like machine learning engineer. If the person is machine learning engineer, well, I can understand that this person is working with machine learning algorithms and this person is, as an engineer, he's probably deploy them, say, well, code them and so on. And there is a data analyst, there is another one. If there is machine learning researcher, that's also clear. If there is like, well, data engineer, I also could understand what this person's responsibilities are. But the data scientist, that's like a unicorn, because then we see data scientists, we accept that this person could handle the big data in the clusters, uh, he could make an ETL, machine learning, deploy them, and he could also maintain his own virtual machine and make a product analysis and A-B testing and financial reporting, why not? So that's the reason, and the data scientist if we expect from a person who is called data scientist, it's a unicorn and you can't just have a lot of them. And yeah, we switch from the trust, but at any job, I had to earn the trust and reputation before I could influence on the processes inside the company. Even my current company, and right now I work in the two companies full time, and uh, in the company where I have quite a good position as a head of data scientist, which is really high, I report directly to the board member. I had to earn a reputation and a trust. I did it pretty fast in a half a year, but I also had to earn a trust and reputation, not only from the management, but from the team and from the other departments in the company. Because, well, we have this big data direction, which is pretty big, it's 200 people there. Mm -hmm. wow. And uh, it was founded a year ago. And well, that was a hard period for us because this direction has to earn a reputation and trust from the other business department. Because again, there is always a fear. When there is something new, then there is a new department, a new structure. And this structure main goal is to optimize the process. People usually have fear. 
and you have to spend a lot of time talking to them, showing results, and showing that these results are reliable and you could maintain them. And that's really important. And then after you've earned the trust, things are much easier. But that's really, really important. So I would say that if you started to work in a new company, that's a crucial moment because you have to earn reputation. You have to earn the trust. Well, especially if you're it's a new department or you're in a high position. So if there is already an existing data science department, that is much easier usually. So people already trust them, people already believe them. But if it's a new structure, as difficult. Yes. And for many people, for many data scientists, who are quite good uh, on the technical side, that's annoying because they're expecting that we will come to the company and we'll just code. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Well, you have to talk to many people. You have to understand their needs. You have to switch from one meeting to another. And then after everything is done and settled, you could start to actually code. But many people who are pretty good in coding, they don't like this part. And it's good that they have a team lead or they have someone who could handle this for them. And I think there are a lot of hustle in the data science and there are a lot of projects which uh, failed because of this. Because I've seen many times that management hiring the technically well-prepared team, technically well-prepared person. But at the beginning, what is expected from the person is to be more business analyst. That is not what this person was expecting. So, And that's a problem. But it's more a problem than we're talking about the new structure or just then the company is creating the data science department, which is still the case because there are a lot of industries, there are a lot of companies which are starting to create their own data science department. So I think it's still the case. Yes, definitely. What did you mean when they're treating them as business analysts? What do you think is the expectation there versus the data scientists? I have seen it a lot of times. The company is hiring data scientists and they have this job interview process with a lot of technical interviews, a lot of coding and so on. And well, for me, job interview is kind of heuristic. If the person has passed well through the job interview, this person mm-hmm. will do well in his daily work in this company. So it makes sense to have a job interview which are pretty close to your daily routine, to your daily work. Mm-hmm. And if you have a lot of technical interviews and they're complicated and they're quite interesting, the person who passed through this interview expects that uh, the job on the other side after he will pass all this interview will be more or less the same. There will be a lot of technical questions, there will be a lot of things to do, to code and so on. But quite often, then after all these technical interviews, the manager hire this person and then there is nothing to code, there is no infrastructure, there is even no data and he expects from this person to handle this to just build everything or just starting from the scratch to talk to business, to talk to IT and so on and so on and so on. And that's a conflict here because the manager expects they think the employee expects completely another based on the interview mm. process he passed through. And that's a quite, quite often I see the case. And I try to make the job interview process as close as possible to the actual daily work. Mm. It's not always the case, but after this, because the job interview 
is the impression that the future employee received from the company and how he could uh, make his image of the company and of his future work. Many times I've seen that the job interview is far away, very far away from the actual job process, which is, yeah. well, actually makes no sense. That's why if you are a data scientist who is applying to a job position, one of the best questions you could ask is to ask, how long have you been using data science in your company? How long this data science department has been operating in the company? If it's quite new, you could expect that there is a lot to do, and these things are not related to the technical side. They are more related to the business side, to talk, to understand, to convene, and so on. That's very important because if you are expecting one thing and you have an offer and you accepted it, and then you see that it's completely another thing, well, you could be disappointed, which is not a good thing. So it makes sense to ask what is expected from you, how old the department is, how old so the practice inside the company is, and how good things are settled up, which is, I think, many, especially junior data scientists, do not ask. Usually, the person who is trying to step in to the data science, he is so excited. Well, the world is beautiful, and he expects a lot, and, well, he wants to learn his first job, and he is ready for anything. And that's a good attitude if you're trying to step in, but it also makes sense to ask before, to understand what we're going into, which is quite hard if you're new. And then it's very important to understand how far your expectations are from the real life, from the truth. So it's better to find another position than uh, just after three months in this new company, leave it. That is such a great way. With like that one question, just asking how old the data science department is in the company. That one question, you're absolutely right. It's going to tell you so much about the state of the evolution of the department and the company in this space and the type of work that they would be doing. That is really great. And tell me, when you've gone to set up teams and go through that evolution yourself, how early have you started teams and how have you gone through that journey? How's that been for you? I remember when I switched uh, to the title of uh, senior data scientist and the first uh, job uh, for me is that title was a bank. I asked the manager, how many people you have in, the data, in this project? And I did a mistake. Well, my question was, how many people have in this project? Not in the data science, but in this project. And he told me, oh, well, we have 14. And I thought... Well, 14 is quite a lot as, as a big team, and I definitely could learn from them. And then I came to this bank. I did find out that, well, there were 14 people on the project, but there is a product team, and the only person in the data science field was, was myself. Just remember my past, and uh, that time I didn't have the advice to ask how old the team is and how many people in the data science team. But could you repeat your question? Is it how I'm building the data science team, how I'm setting it up, or... When you had to build data science teams, how did you go about doing that? Did you have to start from scratch or was it a team there before? And how did you do well, the hiring? I could give you an example uh, yeah. of what we did in X5. Before starting hiring new people, you have to make a plan. It's a good advice to not only to the data science related field, but it's a good, it's a good advice for almost any type of action to make a plan. What does it mean? Well, you're building a data science team to achieve something, usually. And usually, your end result is not a model, but a product. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine the next five, we have a 
forecasting product team. And that means we need to forecast the demand for different types of goods. And the model which make a forecasting is very important. But the model is not the end product. The end product for end user is a kind of interface where the end user could push the button. The model will forecast the demand and this demand will go then to the stock or for warehouse. And two days after, the car will come to the grocery store with all the goods which have been forecast. This is a product. And the machine learning algorithm, which is inside this product, is the core technology. But to build this, you need not only the data scientists, you need the product manager, project manager, you need the software engineers, you need the QA. So you need the product team. And then if you are building the data science department, what you need to build, you need to build this roadmap for the product. So what we would like to improve in the company, perhaps it's a forecasting. Okay, what else? Perhaps there's a kind of recommended system. Okay, what else? Then you understand this point. Well, you could build a team around them. Okay, you have a roadmap for the product team. There is also some support function which you need to to have for any of these products, for each of these product teams. What do you need? You need a computing power, right? You need a computing power for each product team. You also need to have the data. So that means you to have a data management platform, which includes cluster, which includes the data quality, and which includes the ETA. Okay, so given that, you could start not by hiring only the data scientists, but by forming shaping the team. And from my perspective, it's better to hire one full team than to hire a four half team. Because if there is a product team and it's fulfilled, you can't start to do something. If it's not, you can't. So it's really important to make a roadmap for a product, product stream, and really important to find out which support function do you need. And then I'm starting to filling in one product by another. And how I do this? I usually dive into the details of this product. What are they expecting? What are they doing? What problems do they have? And what kind of people they need to solve the problem? Because sometimes the problem is technical and you need a brilliant technical person. Sometimes the problem is more of relations to the business. And you need a person who could explain why we're doing this, how we're doing this, and what we will achieve. So there is no single scheme how to hire people. But uh, the one thing I would say is obligatory is to have a roadmap of the product team and to separate your product team from your support function. That's pretty it. So after you have a product team roadmap, after you have a support function, you understand and you have a clear view and well it makes no sense to hire people in the product team if you can't support them if they do not have the computing power if they do not have the data to work with it and that's why you're filling the support function and then you could start from filling the product team well from my perspective as I said it makes sense to hire a senior data scientist let's call it a data scientist and then to build team around this person because well in our product stream, there are 
three or four data scientists usually, and it is good then you have a leader there, a technical leader who could help other people there. So it makes sense to build a team around this person, like Crystal. That's not that easy to harvest a new data scientist. Well, there is an open data science community. It's a huge one. It's a Slack channel, and there are more than 30,000 people there. It's most of the Eastern European community, and so you could hire people there or you could find a job there and it's a great source for me to find the right person so basically answering your question is short you need to have a plan you need to have a roadmap and you have to separate the support function from the product stream that's really good what type of skills or mindset do you look for in the people that you hire I think that one of the most important quality for employee is reliability. Imagine you have two employees and you have a critical task. And the one employee could handle this task in two weeks, but the probability that he will is 50%. Another person could handle this task in six weeks, but the probability that he could handle it and will do it is 99%. To whom you will give this critical task? You will give it to the person who is more reliable. And that's really hard to check through the job interview process how reliable the person is. And we are trying to look for the proxy metrics, how the person is handled through the different exercises, through the different technical tasks. And the reliability, it, it's a soft skill. It's really hard to measure. You could see it only after the person starts to work in your company. But if you're talking about the hard skill, well, it's pretty basic. We are looking uh, how good the person is in the Python and SQL, in probability theory, in some math, in algorithm, but we are not expecting that the person could handle all the questions we have. What we're trying to look at is how the candidate handles himself, how the candidate is trying to ask the question or handle the question, even if he knows no answer. It's pretty easy to answer the question if you know the answer. <laughs> That's not hard. But if you don't know the answer and you're still trying to figure it out, that's a great quality. That's a great skill. Well, it also depends on what we're looking at this moment because if we need to find a person who could rewrite all our coding base in the optimal way, well, of course, we are looking for people with more hard skills in that field. But we are trying to hire the person who could talk and who could solve the problem. And usually you don't have the answer for the problem. And that's why your skill in answering the questions you don't know answer for is very, very crucial. And I also think that curiosity is a great skill of quality. I don't think that you could call the curiosity as a skill. So we're looking for curious people and the people who like to solve puzzles, riddles, who are looking for challenge, who enjoy to find out the structure in the chaos. Because what data science is, is trying to make something unstructured useful or to solve the riddle or to solve a puzzle. And for that, you have to be curious, you have to be persistent, and you have to be reliable. And then, of course, it depends on what the position we're looking for. It's a junior, senior, it's an intern, it's a middle, or it's a staff. A different level of handling the needed tool. I mean, of course, we expect from the staff engineer, from the staff data scientist, more experience with the Python, with the Spark, with the Hadoop, or with machine learning than from the junior. But there is no scheme. We have a pool of questions, also 
trying to see the reaction, how the person handles himself, how he's going through all this job interview, how he's talking to us. And that's really important because and we also when we're asking a question, when we when we ask a question, we are trying to ask the question pretty close to the real one. And we explain usually why do we ask this question. If you would like, I could give you an example how we do this. If you don't like, no problem yeah. there. Examples would be great. Well, one of the questions I like to ask is suppose the algorithm you build. It doesn't matter what the laws. It doesn't matter what the metric is. It doesn't matter what the algorithm is. But what you did, you have a data. You split it into the train validation and test. So you built your algorithm on the train data. You tuned your hyperparameters on the validation data, and then you made a prediction on the test data. And you compare your prediction with the real target, and then you could calculate the metric. So it's a single number, usually. Any metric is usually a single number. Is it a MSE or MI or log loss? or Rokauk, doesn't matter. It's a single number. If you then will come to me and you'll tell me, okay, I've built an algorithm and it has this quality, I'll take another set of data which the algorithm hasn't seen yet and I'll run your algorithm through this data and it will make a prediction and I will compare it then to the real one and I could calculate the metric and I could be almost sure that the number would be another one. It will differ. Well, it could differ a little bit. It could differ a lot. Doesn't matter in this case, but the question is, how could you give me a confidential interval for your algorithm? I don't need a single number. I need the interval. Uh, that's a pretty applied question because in real life, if you give a single number as a quality, people usually expect your quality to be on this level. But you will never see this quality in real life. You will see some interval. And that's how things work out. And so the case is build me and show me this interval, this confidence interval. And then there are a couple of ways how to build this interval. But the question is pretty applied. So it's really what could arise during your work. And there are a lot of ways how we could handle this. And if persons find the solution, we could then tweak our question a little bit and ask for another one. But it's still quite an applied one. That's one of the questions I like to ask. That's really, really interesting. And tell me about your team composition at the moment. So you have a few different teams that work in your department under you. How is that structured? How do they complement each other in their work? Uh, that's true. At this moment, I do have 52 employees under my lead. They're actually separated in five departments. Computer vision department, natural language processing department, machine learning department, data analysis department, and R&D department. And I also have a plan to hire 10 more people in the next two months. And we have a matrix structure. So we do have a product team. And the product team, as I already told, includes uh, data scientists, uh, developers, business analysts, product Product manager and project manager. And usually every person is working in a team and he's in the same time, he's in the department of computer vision, but he's as well in the product team, which is trying to make, for example, a face recognition system. That helps me a lot because, uh, well, it's impossible to work directly with 52 people. If you just spend five minutes a day with each of them, that's it. <laughs> Your day is over. 
I do have a head of each department, which is a technical leader, for example, technical leader in machine learning, technical leader in computer vision, technical leader in NLP. And well, in the machine learning department, for example, there are 15 people at this moment, and they are separated in a four product team. And uh, that's how they work. And usually in every product team, there is a senior person, and there are one or two middle data scientists and one or two junior data scientists. And so I'm trying to take a feedback from the product manager. I'm trying to take a feedback from a technical leader of each department. And I also try to at least have a small talk with each team member once a week. It's not a one-hour, one-on-one talk. It's just a small talk for three, five minutes to understand what's going on, how this person feels himself, is everything okay, or is something bad, and so on. This matrix structure works pretty well, and we help each other. The product managers, they help me, and I help them. And uh, usually, uh, I'm a kind of... Uh, the last call expert, if they have some kind of problem or they can't, can't handle something, they're asking for my help or they're asking for help of technical leader of this department. And then if he can do, I'll come and help them. That's pretty simple structure, but it's a robust one because there is no single person who is in answer for everything. And that means you could maintain it and it's more robust. I think that nowadays it's more or less common in an IT company at least. So it's Google, it's common at Yandex, it's common at Facebook. It's a pretty common thing. And this product team, this product stream is much better than the standard structure which has been used for many years before. That sounds really interesting. And tell me about your journey on Kaggle. How did that start and, and how's it been? That journey was, that never ends. <laughs> I'm still on this journey. <laughs> Well, my end goal is to become a Kaggle Grandmaster title, and I would love to be in top 10, which is pretty close, but you know, each next step is twice as hard as the previous one. And well, my first competition was in uh, the fall of 2016. It was an all-state competition. And how I joined it, I just uh, heard about the Kaggle in the open data science community. And I thought that it's a good uh, way to improve your skills, to tackle some problem, and to compete with other people. And I like to compete. Well, you know, I like to compete because one of the reasons I like to compete is because I'm not sure about myself. We started to talk with you about the imposter syndrome, and I still have it. And the Kangal for me is a way to prove to myself that I can do this. And it helps. So it's a great one. But anyway, my first competition was in 2016 in Nepal. It was an all-state, and there were quite a lot of people, 4,000 teams, and I ended up on the play 92, but then I was kicked because I did a huge mistake. I sent a submission from my laptop, and I did it as well from my wife's laptop. <laughs> and at that time, I didn't understand I was a cheating, and I was so disappointed. It was it was a huge strike to me because I did spend a lot of time. I've invested a lot of effort in this competition and in the end, nothing. And that's not because I wasn't good enough because I did this silly mistake. And I thought to myself, never again I will compete at Kaggle. Never again. As you could see, that was a lie. So <laughs> nine months later, there was a competition by Sberbank and you had to predict the price for apartment in the next uh, half a year or year. At that time, I was working at Yandex. At that time, Yandex uh, was just in the final 
phase of developing the CAD boost, which is a gradient boosting upon the decision tree, which handles the categorical variables pretty well. And uh, well, I have an access to CAD boost, uh, and there was a final stage, and the person who was the leader of this project, Anna Granica, she asked me to test it on Kaggle. And I did test it. And well, the cool thing about CutBoost is a pretty robust algorithm and it's pretty easy to use. And with just some pitch engineering, I ended up in a position, I don't remember exactly, 60 or 55, which is the top one or top two person because there were a lot of people in this competition and I received my silver medal. Well, and I received the silver, silver medal and thought, okay, there is one more medal and I will receive the Kaggle Expert title. Why not try it? And that time, again, fall, but this time it was 2017, the Kaggle launched a competition from Carvana. And it was a computer vision competition. And I had no prior experience with computer vision. And that's why it was very interesting to me. It was a challenge. And I did have no GPU. I had uh, a virtual machine with 32 CPU. And I started to read the articles. I started to dive into existing code implementation. And so, well, it went pretty smoothly. And just 10 days before the end of competition, I was in the gold medal. But uh, I clearly understood that I need a computing power because I know how to improve my score further. But then I just started to do this on CPU. The system told me that, okay, you need to wait for a 30 day until your training will be over. And so that's why you need a GPU if you would like to compete the computer vision competition, believe me or not. And I did try to find someone in open data science community. And I did find a teammate. Uh, his name is Arthur Kuzin, also. He's right now a Kaggle Grandmaster. Well, but accidentally, he works as well in X5 as a head of computer vision. <laughs> so the Kaggle is, is a good source to hire employees, actually, yes. to find the co-worker. And he, he is pretty good in computer vision that time. He also was in the, in the middle of his journey to become a Grandmaster, but he already had a lot of GPUs. I think he, at that time, had 12 of them. Yeah, and right now he, he has, I think, 24. And it's just his own machine. And he has six dev boxes. Each of them has four NVIDIA 1080 Ti, which is, I mean, amazing. <laughs> so, a lot of computing power. And I just uh, offered him to form a team that I have a pretty good score. And I need computing power and I need some help. And we did find two more team members. And 10 days later, we ended up on the sixth place. And actually, we did some mistakes because uh, if we will just uh, check one thing, we will end up on the first or the second position. But anyway, that was a gold medal. And I became a Kaggle expert that time. But, uh, well, I understood that to become the Kaggle master, I need just one more silver medal. You see how it goes. You need one medal to become an expert, then one more medal. And uh, for a four or six months, I couldn't receive this medal. I wasn't able to win a silver medal and was so frustrating for four months, I think. And then there was another competition, another computer vision competition, which uh, was provided by IEEE, Camera Identification Challenge. And that time I was applying to a Google. That went quite successful and smooth, but that was really hard because I was spending quite a lot of time for preparation to Google and also some time for this competition. And the result of this competition, well, they were published in the night before 
I had an on-site interview in Zurich for Google. Wow. And we ended up on the second place. And I did receive another gold medal and became a Kagalak master the same day. I had a job interview in Google. And then from that, it's a kind of addiction. After that, yes. I thought, okay, now I would like to be in the top 100. Then I entered the top 100. I thought, okay, I would like to become a Kaggle Grandmaster and to be in top 10. And a friend of mine, the Puddle Flipbook, who is right now top three in Kaggle, I think he started almost the same way, but right now he's trying to achieve the top one. So who knows, maybe if and then I will achieve a top 10 in Kaggle Grandmaster, perhaps there will be another goal for me. So the Kaggle is really dangerous because <laughs> There is an addiction to cargo. I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> that is, uh, let that serve as a warning for everyone. That's a warning, yeah. I mean, you have to think two times before you enter in the cargo. If easy turns to the cargo, it's hard to exit. That's right. And tell me, what do you think are the, the future challenges in data science? What do you see as some of the problems or challenges that are coming up for us in the industry? There is definitely some ethical challenges in the industry. And I think we already have seen them through this Cambridge Analytica. We've seen them through this Facebook leakage. And well, there are a lot of ethical challenges. How far are we able to go? What information could we use? How could we use it? There was a sci-fi movie. I think that Tom Cruise was acting there. I don't remember the name of the movie. In that movie, there were special people who could predict the crime. Yes. And uh, there were three people who are predicting the crime. And so you could end up in jail by just a prediction. And is it the future we would like to live in? I don't think so. That's one question. It's an ethical question, and I'm not able to answer it. And I'm not sure that someone is able to answer it. There, perhaps the society in total could answer it, but, well, I can't. But it's definitely a challenge. What we can do, how we can do. And this GDPR law in the European Union, um, that's something we have to work with because it makes some limit. It just has some limitation to what we can do. Perhaps it's for the better, but who knows? And there is also another problem I see which could arise in the future. At this moment, a lot of companies, a lot of people, they're expecting some magic from the data science or machine learning. They expect that it could solve everything. That's not the case. The data science and machine learning especially is pretty applied field. I hope that we, as a data scientist, as a people who work with machine learning, could show the value of data science, could bring the real value. Not only the expected value, but the real one. Because I like the current situation. I like that the data science is a hot topic. I like that there is a demand for data scientists. And I would love to see it in the future. And to see this in the future, we need to bring value. And I think that at this moment of data science, many people who are either entering data science or are in data science, they are not thinking about the value they're bringing to the company. They're yes. concentrated on the technical side. And that's good. But technical side is not the goal. The end goal is to improve something, to bring some value, and to help people, a company, a company and people. So, And if we will not concentrate on the value they're bringing to the company, well, we will just disappoint the company. And that, I see, is another challenge. They're both more 
not the technical challenges, but uh, like the soft skill challenges, but it's the most very important, I think. And uh, what I feel by itself, uh, well, it's huge, it's fast developing, and I think that we have a bright future. I think there will be some hustle, uh, there will be some problems, but we will handle it um, because we could bring so much value, we could improve so many lives, we could improve our overall quality of life with the data science and machine learning. And so I think that uh, the future is bright, and I hope it's bright. Definitely, that is so true. Valerie, this has been amazing. This has been so excellent. I only have one last question for you. And I wanted to ask you about a takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with. Maybe a piece of advice or something that they should consider and look out for throughout their career. Obviously, you've given us a lot of great learnings and advice. Is there um, one piece of takeaway that you would like the audience to leave with? Well, I think that if one person can do something, another person could also do this. And if you would like to achieve something, you have to be persistent and you have to try again and again. Don't fear a failure. Don't fear to make a mistake. The only thing you have to fear is of doing nothing. My advice is to be persistent and to follow your dream and not to be scared. That's more, I think, the question for an aspiring data scientist because uh, I've given a lot of lectures through Russia and through other countries. And there are a lot of people who is asking me, am I told to try to dive into data science or what do I need or does it make sense? And I would say, if you want to, you have to. You have to be persistent and don't be scared. That is outstanding. A fantastic piece of advice. Valerie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing all of your learnings and the such interesting journey that you've had. I really can't thank you enough. That was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It was a great talk and I enjoyed a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Datasource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Datasource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.